Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that could help you sleep, focus, act, or be better? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. I know because it's definitely helped me too. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? They can help you with wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has stuff that you could do with your kids too. And their approach to mindfulness can help you reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Like I said, I use Headspace as well. I used to use it back in the day, then I got off of it for a while to use another tool. But then, honestly, I came back to it, and it's even better. The voicing, the meditation, it definitely, even just with five minutes a day, it really changes everything for me. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Incredible. So you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. This is the Smart Passive Income Podcast with Pat Flynn, session number 260. Let's do this. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, one of his guilty pleasures is a movie titled Mean Girls, Pat Flynn. Hey, thanks for joining me today in this session of the SPI Podcast, and uh, happy April to those of you who are following along week by week. And if you're not, I recommend you do it because if you subscribe to the show, you're gonna get this amazing content sent to you absolutely free, obviously, and we have an amazing lineup coming up. This month, we have an interview with an amazing author from a book that I just read about how to create habit-forming products. Uh, Later in the month as well, we have a, well, the title of the episode is How to Build a Seven-Figure Business by Building a 7K Per Month Business, so how to sort of ladder up from 7K to seven figures, just an entire, essentially a workshop for doing that. And then next week, There's an SEO expert that I invited on who I actually hired to help me with search engine optimization and we talk about some of the things that we all need to be worried about and doing. So make sure you subscribe. This week I have invited a couple friends on who have been working closely with me over the past couple years. This is Dusty and Corey who are on my team. They're from a company called rocketcode.io and they've been helping me with my website overhaul. Dusty, you may actually recognize uh, the voice or just that name. He has been on my team for a while. He is responsible for a lot of the things that you see. He's, he's my designer. Uh, and then Corey heads up sort of project management for a lot of the web development related things. Uh, so we're gonna talk about my recent website overhaul. So for those of you who have been a part of the brand for a while, you'll notice that the blog has been undergoing a number of changes over the past year. And it's been about a year since we made a drastic change to the look of it and the feel and what we wanted to do with it. A lot of things went right and some things didn't go as planned, Uh, but we talk about those things and also give you some advice for those of you who may be putting together a website um, and and specifically those of you who have a design already and you are looking to at some point in the future upgrade what to look out for, uh, things that are actually important and things that are actually not important and and those kinds of things. So without further ado, here's Dusty and Corey from rocketcode.io and uh, 
amazing, amazing group of people. So here we go. Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening in. I'm so happy to welcome two guests on the show today. These are two of my awesome team members, uh, part of the dev team, actually, and design team. We have Corey and Dusty uh, from Rocket Code. What's up, guys? Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Now, those of you who are listening, you might recognize Dusty's voice. Uh, Dustin was in episode 136 uh, way back in the day. That was the one where I actually recorded a little bit of conversation that I had with him and a few other members when I was in Columbus, Ohio. That was actually one of the most loved episodes of the past because that was a very sort of NPR style and the way that it was created. Although it took me like 25 hours to edit 30 minutes of show, I think it was definitely worth it. So welcome back, uh, Dusty. What I wanted to do today and why I wanted to bring you guys on was because you guys are experts. You guys are obviously helping me with uh, the website optimization. We just over the past uh, year went over a huge overhaul, a complete redesign. And now we're in the mode of actually optimizing what we redesigned and making tweaks based on analytics and things that we found out. So I wanted to not only bring people in to this world of SPI and what's going on, but I'll also have you guys help everybody else who's listening understand things like when is the right time to do a redesign? How do you know what to do? What works best for you? I mean, there's a million and one different options that one has when redesigning a website or optimizing it. And you know, how do you even start to figure out what to do? So uh, before we get into that, however, I'll, I'll let uh, both of you kind of reintroduce yourselves. Corey, this is your first time on the show, so I'll start with you. So t tell everybody out there listening sort of what it is that you do, what's your role uh, related to, to myself and SPI, and then kind of how you got into this world. Um, so my primary role is project management. Um, so every, I think everybody's familiar with what project management involves, um, but, you know, it, it it's a lot of... Um, it is, a, it is a cool combination of big picture thinking, bird's eye view, how do we um, basically manage all the moving pieces and all the people involved and making sure that everybody's, you know, on the one hand, their time is respected and that their, their performance and skill set is optimized. And on the other hand, um, digging down into the, the deep precision with timing and um, when are we going to release a feature? Like that, so that's that's a lot of what I do. Um, how I got into this is I've sort of backed into this. Um, I came to project management from business analysis, so doing a lot of requirements, um, basically uh, requirements and analysis, I guess you could say, and um, also quality assurance. So basically testing the requirements and the the end builds of of what features were being uh, released. So um, I, I have like the other side of, um, you know, the non-production side of web, web involved in a lot of client facing situations and uh, basically in the, in the details of making sure that the quality of the thing that we're building is up to spec. Um, and, you know, before that, my background was actually policy analysis. So um, basically taking a lot of information and um, information and distilling it uh, into concise points that are available for use and uh, decision making, which does transfer into this role pretty well. Yeah, and I think you're going to be able to offer a lot of help for people in terms of managing this whole process, because it's not an easy thing to just say, hey, I want something new designed and then putting it up there. There's a, there's a number of things that have to happen in a specific order, which we'll get into um, and Dusty, you know, you're back on the show. A lot of people are very familiar with your work. If they've been on SPI, why don't you kind of give people an update or introduce yourself in terms of how you've been able to contribute to uh, all things SPI and kind of 
you know, share your work. Yeah, so I'm Dustin Tevis, design director here at Rocket Code. Um, initially, actually, I started working with another team called Winning Netis, who was led by Matt Garland. And my kind of introduction to SPI was around more brand assets and traditional graphic design. Um, on the side, though, I was working at an agency, Rocket Code. And Rocket Code kind of specializes in web and UI. Um, so over the past couple of years, uh, my role has kind of changed from production work, branding, over into kind of the UI and website of things for SPI. And that includes everything from the website to SPI or SPP um, and any other kind of product that, you know, at releases. Yeah. And so SPP is the smart podcast player. So Dusty designed the interfaces uh, for those. Obviously, what you see on smartpassiveincome.com is uh, Dusty's handiwork as well. Um, so, Corey, why don't we start with you? I think a big question is, well, you know, we'll start at the beginning. How do, how do people know whether or not to actually have something sort of upgraded or optimized or redesigned? I mean, a redesign is a huge undertaking and it may not even be worth it for some people. What are some of the things that they should be looking out for to make them decide to actually go through with this? I think there's a number of things. And I think you mentioned something that's key is that, you know, there are cases where a redesign while it is appealing and enticing, may not be the right thing to do um, because uh, it, it's really easy to underestimate the scope of, of what it takes and all of the ancillary things that need to be considered, such as SEO um, and the analytics involved. And so there, there's a case for uh, right off the bat just pausing and asking whether or not this is something that I'm ready to invest in. Um, so I think it's important to just be realistic and honest about whether or not like you as a, a website owner fully understand uh, the scope that's required in a, in a website overhaul, replatform, redevelopment, uh, or even adding new features. Um, so if you don't understand that, polling someone in who does is super valuable because they can, you know, basically have a very honest conversation with you to see whether or not it's it's something that you should proceed with. So I think, first of all, getting some outside advice is super helpful. Um, and the good thing is that uh, just in the world we live in now, there are a ton of people who uh, are, are, are really good at this stuff, especially people, I think, in, in a generation maybe that's a little younger than myself, who just are really eager insight into um, what it takes to build a good website. So uh, first of all, I would say, don't be shy about asking for help. Mm -hmm. Community uh, for web development, web design is very collaborative. And I think that's a theme that you'll see as we talk today is that there's a ton of collaboration that not only is helpful, but I would suggest is necessary in order to accomplish a good web redesign. Right. And there are, there are opportunities to upgrade your website and things that can be done on your own. For example, getting new plugins that can add new features, like you said, or getting access to new themes that are coming out. And those on the surface may seem very simple, uh, just kind of almost plug and play or just flip a switch and, and then you're off. But you have to realize that just changing how something looks is not everything. There's a lot of things sort of that's happening in the background that we have to pay attention to, such as, like you said, SEO, there's site speed. There's how the plugins all talk to each other, all those sorts of things. So it's definitely not sort of just a, a kind of flip a switch and then you're good to go. Uh, plus, I think a lot of the decisions that have to be made have to be made consciously and, and for, for good reason. A lot of times people, when they do re redesigns, it's just based on 
hey, what looks good or what the latest cool theme that everybody is using or the latest plugin that everybody's using. And I think so you have to ask yourself some questions. For example, why would you want to upgrade? Is it necessary right now? Do you have the capacity to do it knowing that it's going to be a little bit tougher than just flipping a switch? Um, what are the most important metrics for you as well? That's another one that uh, is it email? Is it getting people to you know, purchase a product or whatever? Those are all going to influence kind of what happens during optimization and redesign. And the other part of it is tracking, because a lot of times we do these things to our websites without even re really realizing sort of what the base level or base kind of thing is to understand, well, is this an actually is this actually an improvement or not? Uh, so there's a lot of things that, that are involved. So, Jesse, this is where I want to bring you in. And, and it's like, you know, from a designer's point of view, um, knowing what's happening out there in the world and these people who want to start upgrading their websites, like I know you have uh, the knowledge to say, hey, this is more than just kind of what it looks like. It's, it's also how it functions and how it works. So how do you approach a design project knowing that it's more than just about how pretty something looks? And you definitely design pretty things, but I know you also keep in mind sort of how things work and, you know, all these other, other metrics and tracking that's that's behind that. How, how do you how do you even start to begin to process all that? At a high level, I kind of ask myself and then the client involved just kind of what type of extensibility they actually need in this new project. Because when it comes down to it, um, the higher the price rate can usually mean just more extensibility or not. Right. Um, so if you start with a base theme, you know, maybe you pay a couple hundred bucks for it. That's awesome. And like you mentioned before, plugins. Cool. But that kind of limits the accessibility of the site itself. Um, and I think when we get into the area of um, custom builds, where extensibility is uh, extremely important, I think that's where kind of like the first touch point is. And that's where we decide if it's something that's worth doing or not. Right. So when it comes to custom builds, for example, how would you recommend somebody who potentially doesn't have a ton of money, maybe just has a little bit of resources to go out and find a designer? How would you recommend they approach them to make sure that the designer that they're working with isn't just kind of making something that looks pretty, but it actually is is working or going to work for them too. Yeah. So my biggest piece of advice there would be, I mean, if you find an awesome designer, that's amazing. Uh, make sure they're definitely versed in web and make sure they have a little bit of kind of, you know, technological background. Because if you don't, that designer will design you into a hole. It will be a very deep hole and it'll kind of set expectations up front that, you know, wow, you can have the world and then you'll soon realize uh, you can't, uh, or at least not with a huge price tag. Um, but if you find a designer you like, and maybe they're not very well versed in web, I mean, it's not a bad idea to find a developer as well that you can help tag some of those issues. Yeah. And Corey, can you speak to that? If you, okay, maybe you find a designer that has done good work, they have minimal sort of actual web development work, so they not, they don't fully understand how that works. But if they were to work with a developer and they could work together, how would you as a project manager recommend people who, again, are at the beginning position, or maybe they've had their site for a while and then just are looking to upgrade? How do they best manage communication between the designer and the developer to get them good results? Yeah, I think, you know, ideally having people, having those two people who are involved with it, if they can be in the same location, that's, that's a, a really great advantage because then they can collaborate and whatever the designer is designing, you know, they can basically do a feasibility test with the developer to make sure that, um, you know, whatever they're thinking of is actually feasible. And, you know, we do that at Rocket Code. Um, when, when we design things, we try to aim pretty big. We don't want to be modest, but we also need to have a gut tech team to make sure that the thing that we're aiming for actually is possible. And once we have a decent amount of a thumbs up, then, you know, but I, I think 
it, it is critical to have that relationship established at the beginning um, and, and so that you don't get too far ahead. Like Dusty said, designing yourself into a hole. Um, if, if, you're, if you think that the designer that you have be a little light on tech skills, then uh, immediately uh, seek out um, you know, a, a web developer um, so that, and, and usually there's some sort of organic relationship between design and development. So I, I have rarely seen a situation where a designer doesn't know uh, of any web developers. So, you know, usually there's some, some references there that you can leverage, but uh, it is critical to have those two working step-by-step -step beginning. That way uh, you don't have to change essentially your, your scope or your direction because the designs aren't feasible. Right. And this almost reminds me of the relationship between an architect and an engineer. When I was working in architecture, you know, we hated the engineers and the engineers hated us because the architects would always design things that were kind of outlandish and were very hard to uh, to actually build. And then the engineers would come back to the uh, architects and say, no, we can't do that. So we have to change the design, which obviously the architects didn't want to do. So the best way to sort of mediate that is to have those relationships early, uh, set those expectations up front. Um, and also from the website owner's point of view, just have a really clear understanding of what you want. What what is that like? What are your top goals? What do you want to happen? And then you also have to let go a little bit. This is the other thing. I used to get a little uh, back in the day when I was custom designing my own websites and uh, hiring people to do that. Um, I would get a little bit too much in the detail, and that would often kind of upset the designer. I don't know if that's because they didn't. You know, they felt I didn't trust them enough or maybe they, I was just kind of annoying. Uh, Dusty, can you speak to that in terms of, you know, if a person's coming in, listening to the show and they're like, OK, I'm going to do a redesign. I have ideas on what I want to happen. I might even have a lot of ideas on what I want to happen. How much should I share with the designer or how much should I just let them kind of use their artistic license? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, usually when you're kind of introduced to a designer, I mean, you want to brain dump everything that you possibly could. Um, I think the best piece of advice would just be not be too prescriptive on how they're going to actually um, commit to this, but just high level business goals, business requirements, get that all documented so that the designer itself has something to run with. Uh, I think it's then important for the designer to kind of take all those inputs, run away for a minute and maybe start even, you know, with wireframes. Like we don't want to jump straight into hi-fi design because again, you're going to get or kind of attached to something and then realize it's not feasible. Um, so that designer should kind of throw together some wireframes, uh, put some functional and potentially technical requirements around it, and then bring that back to the client and kind of vet that from there. And I think that's where um, the client can be reintroduced and be like, hey, I actually have some other ideas around this interaction or how these pages would flow. And I think that's where the main part of the collaboration starts. Okay. And I agree with you. I think the wireframing is really, really important, uh, making sure that there's a lot of touch points along the way so that one can catch something early before it's too late. That's happened to me before as well. Um, so I guess after the wireframe and after a bunch of back and forth until they kind of are set and agree on the wireframe, then sort sort of what are the next steps for the designer slash uh, website owner from there to to continue moving forward after after the wireframe? Like what are the next phases, if you will? So if we have approved wireframes, the designer then will go on and create high five mockups of the actual screens that he presented, he or she presented. Um, and a lot of times, if you find um, a dev and a designer together. They will actually start prototyping this stuff just up front. But it just kind of depends on your budget um, and then what type of uh, resources you have on hands. Um, but once those high five mocks are complete, um, then again, we just come back to the client 
And we say, hey, remember what we did with the wireframes? Let's do that again. Let's make sure we hit all of our business and functional requirements and then hash out the collaboration. Yeah, I think one thing that's really beneficial with solid wireframing is that it allows the client, so in your case, when, when we wire something up for you, then first what it does, it, it, it gets, it crystallizes it in our minds on what we're expecting the, the functional requirements to be around the site. Um, because it's really hard to, to basically write business requirements in thin air without any structural context a la wireframes. And so then I think prior to um, committing to development, there is the opportunity to just finalize the requirements with this, basically this, the skeletal structure in place. So you can you have your, your visual with the wireframes accompanied with some level of requirements to then proceed with. That's really helpful for a designer and a developer to basically have some constraints to operate within. Okay, I understand now. What are some of the big, uh, Corey, this is uh, back to you. What are some of the big mistakes that people make during this whole process of getting a website redesigned and getting it live and kind of just having it go from there? Um, you know, I know mistakes that I've made, but I'm curious to know with all the people that you've worked with and the experience that you have at Rocket Code, like what are some of the big mistakes that sort of people who aren't really sort of tuned to this uh, process are making? Yeah, there's, there's often, um, it's a good question. There is often a, a lack of appreciation for the, the side of things. And, and it's not because it's, it's demeaned, but be, it's harder to quantify. Um, it's the witch, really about, it, it's harder to quantify strategizing about a website. And it's easy to quantify what a design and an initial build will do for you. And so there's often a rush to go into some sort of production because as a client, you you understand that you're paying for some sort and you want to see some sort of result. And um, it's it's easy to shortcut the strategic side of, of that relationship. And so um, not having good requirements can often lead to situation when you get to the end of a build where you, you there's basically uh, a crunch at the end to, to fix a bunch of stuff because it wasn't vetted up front um, or things that use cases that weren't considered at the beginning are pushed to the, the very back uh, to, towards like time when you need to release because uh, those conversations were never considered. And that's something that um, because it's harder to quantify is is something that um, we've seen both on the client side a lack of um i guess you could say for lack of better words appreciation for but also on the agency side it, i've i've experienced it in a couple different places where it, it is um there there's also a tendency to want to shortcut that strategy um, but that really is crucial the planning side of building a quality website is most important stage because it sets the tone for how everything else goes. Yep, and it allows you to really not overcommit because yep. you have everything laid out, but also truly vet milestones within that project. So you know by this point in time, we can have all this done because we have these functional and technical requirements. Life is good. Yep. Yeah, and I would say, Pat, just one more thing, like lessons that we've learned is not allowing a, a period of time for feedback. So we go design something and then we immediately want to go building something building something because we're really excited about it 
but it's it's important to let those designs marinate with the client and let them have feedback, uh, constrained feedback uh, over a predefined amount of time so that you can incorporate that and that everyone's aligned and on the same page before you go into development. Otherwise, what you risk is the developer begins to code the website, but then has to refactor some of the code or make some changes because we didn't allow for a good feedback loop. Yeah, so I guess the big lesson for everybody out there listening is no matter what level you're at, whether you're completely redesigning your website or maybe starting from scratch, going completely custom build with an agency involved and you know whole team behind it, or maybe you have a WordPress website and you just want to add a few more things that aren't plugins yet, or uh, you know, you're just customizing it a little bit. Either way, I think it's really important that you need to give yourself time to leave feedback for prototypes of these things first. Uh, that way you're able to see them uh, like the, the guys were saying, uh, just like sleep on it a little bit. And I know it's hard because we want to rush out and do these things. And especially when we start seeing the wide, uh, this sort of hi-fi, high-fidelity designs come in, it's just like we get really excited. Um, and I've done this even with you guys before, where I've seen a design right away and I get so excited just because it's just blowing my mind. But then I look at it the next day or two and I'm like, oh, this thing is a little off. Maybe it's not as great as I thought it was going to be. I need to leave feedback. And luckily, you guys obviously put the time uh, into have the opportunity to leave feedback, in which case we talk about these things. And I think that's another thing. Can you guys speak a little bit? Uh, Dusty, we'll start with you. When you get feedback from clients, how do you best like that feedback coming in? Because I think a lot of people might not be so oh, so good at communicating maybe what they need and might do it in a way that might actually work against them. You know what I mean? Like, how do you best communicate feedback on somebody else's design? It's like, you know, because I know for you, you take this work very seriously. It's your art almost. And yep. I don't want to tell you that your art sucks, right? Like, so how do you tell somebody that something needs to be changed without telling them that it's not good? <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I think some of that uh, between the client and the designer is just full transparency. And that obviously we're both in this to make the best pro- possible product that we we. And before when we did feedback, um, unfortunately, we didn't use a specific tool and it happened through emails. And if you have feedback through emails, it's an endless loop, a vicious cycle that turns in both for the client and for the designer into just kind of a hot mess. Uh, so what we started using more recently is actually a tool called Envision. Um, and Envision allows you to uh, upload static screens, whether they be wireframes or hi-fi designs, um, link them together so you can actually click through these static screens and go from one view to another um, and then leave comments physically on the actual screen um, that they're currently looking at. What this allows um, is kind of a, a sense of transparency between the client and the designer where they can have a start conversation or a dialogue. Um, and having that direct feedback um, allows you to kind of get to solve the problem a lot quicker than you normally would through like a communication like email, um, but then allows everybody to kind of regroup, vet the comments, vet the feedback, and then decide on the, the action plan to move forward. Yeah, everybody's seeing the same thing. Yep. Yeah, you guys used Envision when we were doing the search redesign. If you haven't been on SPI lately, check out the new search feature. It's amazing, sort of auto-populates results, and the results are based on a lot more data points. It's it's a lot cleaner, a lot better. I love it. And guys, well done on that. It was awesome. Um, you had shared with me this Envision app thing, which is sort of like a, if any of you are in video, there's a tool called Whipster, which if you're creating video for clients, you kind of put it through Whipster and people can leave comments directly on the videos at certain points and stuff. It's really helpful. This is the, like the equivalent to that, but for web design. And I was able to actually click through and actually it almost felt like a real 
website, but uh, apparently it's just you know JPEG files or or PNG files instead. And so it gave me really good insight. Yep. I think in terms of communication, you know, email would be the worst. I think direct communication with a designer or two, if there wasn't a big team on like Skype or something, would be second worst. Uh, then there's th- things like Slack, which are actually really good at helping to archive things, share images, and save things and communicate, especially within a team. Uh, but I think for specifically, if you're working with a developer and they have access to Envision app, like try to get them to use it because that's going to be the best way that they're going to be able to communicate with you in terms of what it is that's going to be engineered. So um, that's yeah. the awesome part about Envision. I mean, it's low barrier entry. I mean, there's literally nothing to learn, um, and they have a free version. So Quite literally, anybody can use it. That's cool. Would that be a cool tool that somebody could use to share with their audience a particular kind of way a website might work and get their immediate feedback on it before it's actually engineered? Yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, I've actually seen people share it with their community. Um, The only problem you might run into is if your community is quite large, uh, that feedback might become a little bit overwhelming because you can click and add an annotation and pretty much type whatever you want. Um, so as long as that's controlled and it's kind of a subset of the community, I mean, absolutely. I mean, let's talk about that really quick. I think it's important to get community involved at some points during you know, just your entire entrepreneurial journey. I think it's a great way to build raving fans, get people to become a part of the brand and actually help influence what it becomes. I've done that many times in the past. For example, if you have a book design that you're working on, just create two different types that may be interesting to you that you might choose from and share it on Facebook. I mean, and ask people, which one do you like better, A or B? You're going to get a bazillion comments back from people expressing their opinion, but also it's going to help increase your edging score. And it's going to make people feel like they're a part of the brand too, which I think is great. But in terms of website redesign, I know a lot of people who go through redesigns, they create it on on however means they can, and then they share it with their audience. And then some people love it. And then some people say they don't love it. And then that leaves the person baffled because they're, they're like, crap, my audience of you know this many people, they're saying <laughs> right. this thing, but they're saying this thing like Corey, where 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 does one even start to you know start to filter that feedback, and how do you know who's who's right or wrong? Yeah, well, the one thing that mitigates a lot of that, um, I guess, takes some of the emotion out of it is the fact that there's tools that can funnel users through two different experiences simultaneously in a, in a live situation, so that you don't have to um, rely on, I guess, the the Opinions. chain of communication. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, that's just the ability to do a B testing, which is, um, it's a concept that's been around for a long time, but in the web world, it's, it's basically just, it allows you to, you know, run, uh, a parallel experience and you can determine the amount, uh, the percentage of users that you want to run through either your control and your variation, or maybe two variations, um, and to get the data behind how people are, inter- are interacting with these different experiences. And that way you, you get uh, much clearer indicators of, of how the functionality is, how people are responding to the functionality rather than having to, yeah, I guess, wade through the, the noise just to get to the signal. Yes, I'm glad you brought up split testing. That's something we've been doing this A-B testing thing. We're using, I mean, there's a number of different tools. I forget which tool we're using yeah, the last one, the one that we leveraged for your navigation and homepage was called Zargit, which is really new, so startup also, um, and it, it was great to be able to work with them to, to get data on, on both your navigation and your homepage. 
Yeah, so there was Zargit. I think there's also Optimizely. There's Visual Website Optimizer. There's a few of these tools out there that can help serve different variations of, for example, your homepage and whatever your number one call to action is on your homepage. And hopefully you have a number one call to action on your homepage of some kind. You can then determine the conversions for each of those different uh, pages and variables to see, well, without even having to ask people, you just kind of get the data that and the numbers don't lie at that point. And then you can just flip that one on and or or have that one be the one that's engineered. So I think big lesson, if you are at that level at which you can start beginning to you, you can start to begin to add more resources to your website and optimization, you can start to explore split testing with your developer and your designer coming up with different variations to help people uh, into a particular call to action that you might have and then start tracking those things. And I think that's going to be the way for you to know for sure whether or not a specific design or uh, iteration that you have is, is better than another. So, you know, we're talking a little more high level and I know most of you who are listening to this right now might not be, be there yet, um, but it is something to strive for. And I think it's definitely something that, especially once you start generating an income, you'll be able to see dollars and, and, and cents related to these different uh, iterations that you're creating. So it can become very exciting and fun. And, you know, we're at that point now, for example, you had mentioned the homepage iterations. Uh, we have it. You, we have different versions of the homepage, so uh, or or had at least, and, and was co we're collecting data. But that told us very clearly, you know, what was working better than others. And we've done this on other different parts of websites and specific parts of blog posts and, and other things too. It's it, it actually becomes a lot of fun and exciting to to have the numbers tell you, you know, what what to do. Um, Dusty, I want to talk to you really quick about pe people's desires when they are redesigning their website. What are some of the things that you feel? A lot of people who are redesigning their websites want, uh, but maybe don't necessarily need or maybe kind of just superfluous or kind of extra. I think there's some basic needs that have to happen, but a lot of times people see other people doing things and it just might look kind of cool or seem kind of amazing and it's probably not right for them. But how do, how do we filter what's actually needed in a design versus what's what's not? This is even before, obviously, we start testing and split testing. It's at the core, you know, what should be on that page or what what shouldn't be on that page? Yeah, but I think the first thing we do is kind of remove the subjective nature from it. So, like, obviously, we know we need to build an awesome product, um, but you are not necessarily your audience, right? You can't necessarily speak for them. Um, so I think what we like to run with here at Rocket Coach is really, truly focusing on an MVP. Um, and that MVP can be of anything. So for a high-level example, you see this awesome search experience that's on SPI.com. Um, as a client, you're like, I want that. Um, I'm sold. How do we do it? Um, but you really need to take a step back and say, hey, what's a true MVP where we can kind of really bet and test that search is needed, you know, on your site or it's the type of experience that your audience is kind of yearning for. So I think kind of that, that first step there is just vetting what truly is needed. And then once you kind of vet that, um, create a true MVP. Yeah, an MVP which, is a minimum viable product, yep. essentially, um, which is a smart strategy all around, whether you're creating courses or products or uh, changing website designs. I think it's, it's a very smart way to go. Um, Corey, do you, do you have any thoughts on sort of feature creep, if you will? Yeah, I think, I guess not to pick on Dusty's trade, but be wary of like an overly designed comp or mock-up because um, there's the, the temptation to want to jazz up um, a website as much as possible with like really robust designs. Um, but I, I think the thing to watch out for is does somebody have to explain to me how this website works? That's a, a sign that a website is, is just overly designed by someone who may not be, going back to what we were talking about earlier, 
may not be intimately involved in web design. Um, if you're familiar with the book, The Design of Everyday Things, but he talks a lot about learned behavior versus intuitive behavior. If you have to learn how to use the thing based on like a manual or things like that, it's probably not well designed. But if, if the thing explains itself based on the layout, then you have a good product to run with. Yeah, that makes sense. But then the, the question is, well, how do you how do you know? I mean, a lot of the and then this was me in the beginning, too. Like you just kind of you have no idea what works and what doesn't or what's too much or too little. Um, how would you even go about deciding, you know, what should or shouldn't be on there after you see, for example, a wireframe? You know, I feel like most people who get something back from a, a web designer might be just like, OK, I, I trust you. Um, but then you, like, how do you know? Is it or is there a way to know? I mean, at a high level, I think it's important for the client and the designer and developer to engage with the audience before they even start a thing. If we're that concerned, like around what features might work, might not, especially kind of with less experienced um, designers and developers in the industry, like let's just ask the audience, let's right. bet like what features are they looking for? And that can be something as simple as a survey they send out and uh, maybe offer something with that survey. But you'd be surprised to find that like if you have um, a following that really believes in you, they are willing to kind of speak up and let you know what they want in the product. Yeah, that definitely happened with us. We did a survey and 7,500 people responded, which was amazing. And that influenced a lot of things that happened uh, all over SPI and even internally in SPI on the email list and the different buckets and that sort of thing. So definitely do a survey. I'll link back to that episode I did with Ryan Levesque, who is the author of a book called Ask, which really changed everything. So that, that'll help you run the, these surveys. But a good question to ask is, hey, what's something that you wish was available on the site that wasn't? And on, and on the flip side, what's something that you feel is on the site that isn't necessary? And just asking straight up to your audience what these questions are, they're going to give you some insight. And yeah, they're going to be some people who say things that nobody else says. Those ones you can just kind of, you know, have as, as sort of, you know, OK, that, that's interesting. But then the ones where you start to see patterns and you start to see a lot of people say the same thing. Well, that's obviously a good indicator of, well, that's something you should or shouldn't have or at least should think about uh, when, when you go through the through the iteration. Um, Corey, when you get the design up and it's live, I mean, the answer is no, but is this the end? No, you, you keep going and you have to continually determine to what you, you have to keep track of things and, and make sure that, that things are working. And if they aren't, that people follow up and fix those things. So what are some of the best practices that people have when a, a brand new website goes live, like maybe even on that day, like what should that day of, of the brand new launch be like? Uh, th there's obvious things coming from a marketing point of view, which I think are important. I think anytime you come out with a new design, it's a great excuse to get your email list to come over and visit your website. It's a great excuse to sort of make this grand big announcement or even do giveaways to help share and get all these things you know, viral and, and have, have it kind of grow socially. Uh, but in terms of just making sure things are working, how to fix the uh, bugs, which always happen after it goes live, uh, even if it's tested offsite. Um, tell me about that day and that week. What should one do to make sure things are working and running correctly? Yeah, there has to be a solid relationship with the client such that um, there is inevitably going to be a list of bugs or follow-up features that, um, you know, just be, whether it's due to time or budget or you know, some constraint isn't feasible for the day one launch. And so, you know, it, there is a negotiation for how to prioritize that, uh, those things, whether they're actual bugs 
Obviously, if it's a, um, a feature that's impeding a website, a, a user from actually using the website, that would be a critical showstopper that needs to be fixed ASAP. But there's other things that are less important and can go into some sort of backlog that can get prioritized. And I think that's something that should be um, a collaborative effort with the client. So, you know, when, when we work with you and, and we say we have these things in the backlog, how important is this to you to be addressed right now or, you know, when we have free time or is it just something that, you know, is, it just stays dormant? Those are conversations that they just need to be transparent and direct. Um, and I think it helps build trust when, when we just expose things that we see are perhaps wrong or not totally optimized with the site at, at day one launch. Um, and this is where productivity tools can be really useful, whether it's Trello or Asana or different tools where um, there is a, a collaborative nature to them. And it, it sort of sets up the documentation and allows everybody involved to sort of prioritize what, what we should do next is. Um, that's Those are the things that I, that I would I guess, suggest for the day one and week one and month one launches to basically work with um, clients uh, to prioritize what, you know, and in what priority those bugs and features. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely, for those of you listening who are going to do a redesign at some point, hopefully this has been a good sort of primer for you or something to look uh, forward to be to, to do, but also kind of a warning for some of these things that might happen. You will have bugs unexpected things happen the day you go live. It's just expect that. If you don't have any, well, congratulations. Like, that's awesome that that, that happened. But usually something will happen. It's always happened with us, and that's okay. And it's just something that's expected. But we've, all, we've also communicated and said, you know, on launch day that they're going to be there to fix those critical things. They're not just taking vacations on that day because they finally went live. So making sure that the developer that you're working with and even the designer, they're available on that day uh, and, and a lot during that week to help fix things that are critical. Um, so I would recommend definitely getting ready to start keeping track of some of these things that are coming in. And even if you start to get a lot of them, I wouldn't get upset. Uh, obviously, if there are very major things that were supposed to happen that were told that that did happen, but then didn't happen, that's something that I would obviously bring that up. Uh, but even if it's small, I would just start keeping track of these things that are going to be fixed that you can present and having them know that you're doing this is just going to help them want to make sure things are fixed and, and done well on the day it goes live anyway. So having that be a transparent sort of authentic relationship, I think, is also really important um, so that that's great. And then just, again, setting those expectations up front for yourself and, and for everybody involved, honest communication. That's that's definitely the way to go. Um, the last thing I want to mention related to web design and all in this entire conversation, uh, Dusty, we'll go back to you. And this is related to the mobile friendly version of websites this is obviously something we should all be paying attention to if we have a redesign or are redesigning a, even a small part of our existing website we need to make sure that whatever is being done is also mobile friendly because this is something that google now pays major attention to in terms of search engine rankings and also just making sure that the user experience on mobile which a lot of people are using mobile now to visit our websites is also great so can you help a person on the other end listening through the process of how to make sure that their website is also mobile friendly. I'm not asking you to give a lesson on, okay, what is the definition of mobile friendly or not? That's up to the, up to the designer. Um, but how does one make sure that, you know, that their designer that they, they work with is actually doing, you know, doing things right? Um, the easiest way to kind of 
make sure it happens correctly, honestly, is just let's tell the designer, let's design mobile first. Um, because when you design mobile first, um, you really kind of can tell, you know, like what features need to exist on that experience. And from there, it's easy building that out to desktop. I mean, mobile use over the past few years has just skyrocketed. So obviously, that's just a very, very huge market that you want to keep it focused on. Um, and making sure that everything that you want, all the functionality and features that you want to include, um, if you can do that kind of in a mobile first wireframe in routes, um, it makes it a lot easier to kind of expand that over to desktop. Yeah, I also think going that approach helps one think of what are the most important things that need to be shown? Because you obviously can't put the whole homepage on the screen before they start scrolling. So you have to really be selective on what's important, what's the first impression going to be like, what are the most important things that need to be seen? That can also just be reflected on the desktop version as well, but the smaller screen on the phone just makes it more apparent and forces you to think about those things, right? Yep, absolutely. So we'll finish up one more uh, question to all of to, to each of you. Just one last piece of advice for somebody who is about to undertake a uh, web design. Uh, Corey, we'll start with you. What's one tip or piece of advice you have for uh, that person who is a little bit nervous because they're about to potentially, you know. Put down a little bit of money to make this happen but uh you know you have their back so what what would you offer them i think you hit on it earlier when when you said that um you have some of the control um and and let the the designer and developer thrive obviously there's um a category for feedback but um you know you'd be amazed at what a, a good design and development team can accomplish when they're when they feel like they are empowered to to basically optimize your brand. Um, if they don't feel that empowerment, then uh, it's inevitable that their their designs aren't going to be as robust as they could be otherwise. So I think that you know there is um, there is a relinquishing of I guess the control of the details um, that is really important. Um, and and just maintaining the, the trust and transparency that you can have with uh, that development and design team. Along those lines, do you think it's important for a person, even if they're hiring somebody just for a one-off project, to have that designer and or developer really understand sort of their mission behind their brand, sort of the story behind it or all that stuff? Or is that something a designer and developer don't even really care about? I think it's absolutely critical. Um, if, if you don't have that context, then you do miss out on the overall message and you could just totally miss on the designs completely. The more that you understand about the business goals, the spirit of the brand, um, if it's an e-commerce, revenue targets there are, all those things inform design. So yeah, having that kind of detail is, is critical in a good web design. So Dusty, would you suggest that a good filter to decide whether or not they're working with the right person is whether or not they ask you about those things? 100%. I mean, it's all about open communication and transparency. Um, if you come to a designer with an idea and they're like, cool, we'll build it, um, that's definitely a red flag. Um, if they're unfamiliar with your brand, first time you're working with them, they should be sending over, you know, like a brand's questionnaire to at least kind of get a little bit inside of what your community is like, what mm -hmm. the brand's like, um, what kind of users are actually using the site. And if that doesn't come through, I mean, for me, that's kind of like a halt. Um, maybe you're not the right person for this job. Nice. Um, any final tips, uh, Dusty, on the design side of things for people? Honestly, just, I mean, be open, be communicative, and don't uh, be scared to give feedback. I mean, you mentioned this before. 
Um, sometimes it's like, wow, how do I tell a designer that maybe their design isn't so awesome? Tell them that because, mm -hmm. you know, um, they might be unaware that what they did might not be the right fit for your audience. Um, and if you never say anything, I mean, it's just going to take you down, you know, a uh, mm -hmm. bad path. Great advice, guys. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you guys are busy over there working on a bunch of stuff. So uh, thank you so much. I know I speak on behalf of everybody, uh, everybody listening. This is really, really helpful. And I hope this will uh, help alleviate uh, some of the pains that people might have down the road with with their uh, sort of the relationship they have with their team who is helping with their redesign. So, uh, Dusty, Corey, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate you and uh, look forward to talking to you guys off the podcast. Awesome. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode with uh, Corey and Dusty. Thank you guys so much for joining me and for imparting that wisdom and being open and honest about it the entire way. Uh, if you want to check out Rocket Code, you can check out rocketcode.io. Obviously, the show notes, as always, they exist back on the blog at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 260. And then finally, I want to thank also an amazing tool that I've been using to help me with social media. You know, social media reach uh, has been plummeting. A lot of tools have been sort of uh, putting the brakes on how far we can actually reach with our messages. And Edgar is the only tool designed to help. It's the first and only tool made to specifically address this issue of the, the plummeting social media reach. Um, it's a scheduling tool that automatically builds a library of every update a user uploads so they can share them again and again over time. And I've used it and I've had much success with it, a lot more traffic, a lot more engagement with my audience through this tool. And I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, I still use it and I use it for both Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and it's just an amazing engine for your social media plan. And if you don't have one, this helps you set one up too. So uh, it's awesome. And they have an amazing deal for you, just for you guys, actually. So there's a two-week free trial of Edgar that's open and available for you. No credit card required. So literally, you can just get it set up and running. Um, it's not auto-build, and it's really easy to set up. All you have to do is go to meetedgar.com slash SPI and fill out that info there. So again, two-week free trial of Edgar. We've had them on the show before as a sponsor and we've had an amazing result and a lot of feedback, uh, great feedback from people who have used it and I'm excited they're back again to sponsor and that is meetedgar.com slash SPI. Fill in that info and you'll be all set. All right, thanks guys. I appreciate you and I look forward to uh, seeing you or not really seeing you because I can't see you, but hearing from you or you hearing from me. I, you know what I mean. I look forward to, to serving you next week with uh, the episode with my SEO higher search engine optimization, something obviously is that's uh, very important for all of us, no matter what stage we're at. So we'll talk about the basics. We'll talk about the advanced stuff. I look forward to that. Till then, keep rocking it, guys. Take care. Love you. See you the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI. And today, I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point. So I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray. And in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. 
For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John, who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure, and it always finds a bright side. I really love it, and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it.